We're going to have our Bible reading now. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there should be a, a hard black Bible in the pew in front of you. Today's reading is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. And you can find that on page 1205. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Well, good morning, everyone. If we've not met before, may I introduce myself? My name's James, and I'm one of the pastors here, along with Peter at BRBC. And this morning, we are continuing in our Sunday morning teaching series called Pray, with the subtitle of Postures for Praying People. That's what we have been talking about. So let's begin here. Imagine you get in touch with a friend that you haven't seen for a long time, and you say to your friend, Wouldn't it be great if we went out and go and grabbed some lunch together? Or we went out to Starbucks, perhaps, and we go go get a coffee and we catch up. And so you go along and you meet your friend and you have a wonderful catch-up time together. They come in and they ask you some questions about life. How's life going? How are the kids doing? How are the grandkids? How are your mum and dad these days? Oh, how's work going? Oh, you remember that time you were going through that? How is that these days? And you have a chance to answer those questions, and they really care about what you have to say. And so then you respond with similar questions. Oh, how are you doing? How's your life? How's your mum and dad? How's work? How are the kids? Those kinds of questions. And so they have a chance to respond. And I'm guessing you would walk away from that time with your friend and thought, wow, I don't know why we don't spend more time together. I love that. I got to listen to where they are. They got to listen to where I am. And I really felt like what I have to say, what I had to say was quite, was, was valuable. And they cared about what I had to say. Now, now there's that scenario. Imagine that again. You get in touch with a different friend and you say, I think it's time we had a catch up. Let's go get some coffee. And so you go in there. And you sit down with your friend and you ask those questions. How are you doing? How's the kids? How's work? How's life been? And so they tell you, they just kind of spill all of their guts out, tell you everything that's going on. This is going on, this is going on, this is going on. And they they respond with questions, well, tell me about you. And when you start talking, they then do this. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Yep. Oh. Yep. Uh, Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, uh, mm mm-hmm. How do you begin to feel? You begin to realize that they absolutely don't care about what you're saying. So you might say to them, it looks like you're busy there. Would you like to send that text message, or do you need to make a phone call? Oh, oh no, no, it's it's okay, Just, just carry on. And so you keep talking, telling them about how you're doing, and they just keep, uh huh, yep, all right, yep. And you start to realize they really don't care about what you have to say. 
So how are you going to look back on that coffee time with them? You're going to think to yourself, I don't know why I bothered talking to them. They didn't care about what I had to say. They didn't care about what I had to say about my kids, my work. They just weren't interested. I don't think they even heard me. And so you might say, well, I don't know if I'm going to go out for coffee with them anytime soon. Now, take that thinking, take that feeling, take that sense of, I don't know if I was really heard, and now bring it into your prayer lives. Because I wonder if most of us in this room have been through one of those seasons, or we are even there, where we begin to think to ourselves, I don't know if God actually hears me when I pray. I don't actually know if he cares about what I have to say. And like my friend on the other side of the table with their phone, it looks like he's got other more important things to be dealing with, like sustaining the universe, to listen to insignificant little old me. How do I know God hears me? How do I know he cares? I wonder if you've been there before when it comes to prayer. Now, the passage we just had read to us and what we're going to be studying has a lot to say about that, has got a lot to say about prayer. And what we find is the author of Hebrews in chapter 4, verses 14, 15, and 16, paints this beautiful grand picture of the person and work of Jesus and then has something spellbinding to say about what that means for our prayer life, what that means in our approach to God. Now, now Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14, 15, and 16 is all about our approach to God in prayer. But what the author wants to build that upon is something extremely special. And if we see it, I contend, I think, I know, will change the way that we pray. So, so the big overarching question behind all of this is, well, how then do we approach God in prayer? Because if we can answer that, then we'll see what this passage has to say for our prayer lives. So why don't I kick off here by reading that first verse that we had read to us. Let's dig in right here. Look at verse 14 in chapter 4. There are some key words here. Since what? Since then, we have a, listen to this, key words, a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, i.e. has ascended to be with the Father, Jesus, the Son of God, let us, what's that word there, hold on to our confession. Now our confession seems to be right there, that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is our Lord and Savior. But what does the author say about Jesus right here? How does he describe Jesus? Really interestingly, a great high priest. Now maybe you step back for a moment and think, I have absolutely no idea what that means, that Jesus is a great high priest. I, I don't know what that means. Or maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, I know there were priests in the Old Testament. Has that got something to do with the priests in the Old Testament? What's this about? Well, the thing is, if we can understand what the author of Hebrews means, when they say Jesus is a great high priest we're going to understand everything that comes after that, not just in this passage, but we'll probably understand what the entire book of Hebrews is on about. So to answer the question, what does it mean that Jesus is our great high priest, we're going to have to go right back to the beginning 
of the Old Testament. So I'm going to kind of use the front of the stage here as Old Testament history. Here's the beginning in Genesis. The other side is going to be when Jesus comes. So I'm going to open my Bible to Genesis chapter 1. You can follow along with me, or you can get that open in your Bibles. Now, if you went to the very first word in your Bibles, it's going to say something like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if you continued reading, what you would find is this beautiful, succinct, but to the point poetic description of God's creative acts. And you can read through this. You can see the spaces that God made and how he filled those spaces. And then the pinnacle of his creation is when he makes human beings. Let's make man and woman in our image and our likeness. And so humanity is made. Now the design for humanity is to be in relationship with God and to be in community and relationship with each other and to care and to keep God's creation, to kind of rule over it and look after creation. That's human beings' role. Now that worked really, really well for a little while because we know we turn the page Things don't work out as well for very long. We get to Genesis chapter 3. We know the story. The human beings are tempted. They do the one thing that God had said, don't do. Don't eat from the tree. Because you know in that day, you will surely die. But what happens? They don't die instantaneously a physical death. It's a spiritual death. It's a separation from God. And so what God does is he casts them out of the garden away from his presence. Look at the last verse of Genesis chapter 3. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed, look at this, really interesting. This is be key for our understanding. He placed a cherubim with, as a type of angel with, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So connect the dots of what's going on. God created everything very, very good. There were perfect relationships between God and humanity and between humanity. But now sin has entered the world, entered the hearts of the people. There has now been a fracture between humanity and God and between human beings. And so God cast them out of the garden. What does he do? He places a cherubim. This is essentially a keep out sign. So what's happening is that there is now a wedge between people and God. There is now a split. There is now a need to be reconciled. Or as Hebrews 59 verse 2 puts it, the sin has hidden the face of God now. And so here's the key word here, that access that was once had cannot be had anymore. There is a wedge, there is a chasm, there is a split, there is a tearing in this relationship. The access isn't the same anymore. And this cherubim is the keep out sign. Now, God at this point could have said to humanity, I'm done with you. You had one chance and I gave you everything and yet you focused on the one thing you didn't have. I told you everything in this world was yours and you just went for that one thing you couldn't have and you couldn't resist. Therefore, I'm done with you people. You go figure it out yourself. You go make your own way. You work your way out of your sin." God could have said that, would have been completely in his rights to do that to people, but he doesn't because he's a gracious and merciful God. So immediately sets this plan in motion to forgive the people, a plan in motion to rescue the people, a plan in motion to set the people free from their sin. So so we go through the Old Testament just a little bit further. We get to Genesis chapter 12, introduction of this guy called Abraham, or Abram then is called Abraham. 
Now, God says something really special to Abraham. He says, right, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. And through this nation, the other nations are going to be blessed. So what God is doing is he's not turning his back on humanity, and he's putting a plan of salvation into play. Now, we could keep on moving through this, moving through the Old Testament, and where do we get to? Well, we see God holds fast to his promise, and Abram's descendants do become a great nation, the nation of Israel. Now, you can move on to the second book of the Bible. You get to the book of Exodus. We know the story quite well, don't we? The Israelite people end up being in slavery in Egypt. God raises up Moses, and God speaks to Moses. Moses speaks on behalf of God and on behalf of the people to the Pharaoh, and they end up going free. God rescues them. Now, here's the thing. Keep following me, because this is where it gets important. God ends up speaking to Moses on the journey out of Israel towards the promised land. Remember, God says lots and lots of important things. Namely, here's the laws you are to live by, Israel. Moses, go tell these people all of the laws. Here's how you're to live. Here's how you're to be distinct from the people around you. Secondly, Moses, here are some instructions for something called a tabernacle. I want you to make this kind of tent-looking thing, and in a tabernacle, you're going to make sacrifices to atone for your sins. So the second half of Exodus, what we find is this detailed description of what the tabernacle is to look like. Now follow me here, because here's where we're going to begin to understand what a priest is. So here, I'm going to throw up a, uh, a picture of what a tabernacle would have looked like. Now, this is what God told Moses to build. So you can see, around the outside, we've got this kind of fenced-in area. Uh, we've got some of the animals being sacrificed right there. And it's in a great picture. But in the middle, we've got this, this tent area. And it's inside of the tent where the sacrifices were going to be made. So next slide. This is what the inside of the tent would have looked like. So these details were given to Moses. And here's what would have happened. A sacrifice would have been brought in. A sacrifice would have been offered. And therefore, blood needed to be spilt, a sacrifice made, so that the sins could be atoned for. Now, have a look at how this tabernacle is set up. You can see it's split into two parts. We have the, the part on the right, so that's the bigger part. That would be called the holy place. And then the part on the right to the, back, oh, sorry, to the left on the back is going to be called the most holy place or the holy of holies. Now, it's in the Holy of Holies was the place where God was to dwell. And nobody could go in there. So I'm just going to turn to Exodus 27, where, God where, where Moses describes right here what this dividing curtain is supposed to look like. Look at this. And you shall make a veil, really interesting, a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. Look at this. It shall be made with cherubim. We've heard that word, haven't we? Cherubim skillfully worked into it. Now connect the dots there. God cast humanity out of the garden. What did he put on the edge of the garden? Cherubim. What did that function as? A keep out sign. This access between humanity and God isn't like it was anymore. So what's on the curtain? Skillfully woven in the picture of a cherubim. So this too functions as a keep out sign. God dwells there, nowhere near as accessible as he was. You can't come in here. 
Sacrifices are to be made on a daily basis, but you cannot come into this presence, into the Holy of Holies, apart from one day of the year. You can read about it in Leviticus 16, but one day of the year, someone was allowed in. That person was the high priest. Now, they had lots and lots of priests offering sacrifices every day throughout the year for the sins of the people, for them to be atoned for. But one day of the year, on the day of atonement, there was one priest, the high priest, was allowed into the holy place and then through the veil, through the curtain, to the place where God dwelt. And here's what the high priest would do. Only on the Day of Atonement, he would go in with fear, trembling, and trepidation. And what he would do is he would offer sacrifice for himself. He'd offer a sacrifice for the people and take the blood, go through that veil, through that curtain, and sprinkle the blood, offering atonement for the sins of the people so that they could be forgiven. Because God has said, look, a sacrifice must be made. Blood must be spilt for the payment of your sins. And so it was on the Day of Atonement that the high priest offered that sacrifice. Now look at this. The high priest goes in representing all of God's people. So in the one, there is the many. Represented in the one, he goes in through the veil into that place where the keep out sign was. And there the sins could be atoned for. Turned around, went out and pronounced a blessing over the people. So that's what a high priest would have done. His role would have been much like the other priests. Only that on the day of atonement, he was set apart to go through the veil into the presence of God, offer a sacrifice so that the people could be forgiven. That's how this temporary sacrificial system would have worked. And that's the role of the high priest. Now, Now fast forward a little bit in Old Testament history. You'll get to a guy called King Solomon. And King Solomon ends up fulfilling his dad David's dream of building a temple. A temple is going to have the same structure and the same setup, only it's going to be made of stones, it's going to be luxurious, it's going to be elaborate. And it's still going to have a holy of holies where the high priest goes in once a year to offer a sacrifice on behalf of God's people so that they could be forgiven. Okay, so that's a crash course in the Old Testament sacrificial system. Now let's move forward a little bit and we'll get to the life of Jesus. Now, Jesus enters our world because in Jesus we have a God to human movement and Jesus takes on human flesh. He steps into our brokenness. He steps into our mess. He steps into our sin and he lives the life that we could not live. You know, where we get things wrong, where we say those words that we wish we hadn't have said, where we say those hurtful things that tear others down. Jesus never did that. Where where we think that bitterness and those grudges and those horrendous thoughts, Jesus never did that. And where we do those things and we look back and say, I wish I hadn't have done that. Jesus never did that. He was sinless all the way. But we know how the life of Jesus goes. The church has been proclaiming it for 2,000 years. Jesus' life... He has a a three-and-a-bit-year ministry and draws to an end when the powers that be come against him. And what happens? The Jews are upset, the Romans want peace, and Jesus is sentenced to death. 
Now, Jesus then goes to the cross, doesn't he? He carries his own cross. He's nailed to the cross. And for six grueling hours, Jesus writhes in agony on the cross. And we know what happens on the cross, don't we? Jesus says things like, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus says to one of the criminals next to him, surely you will be with me today in paradise. And one of the Gospels tells us he cried out with his final breath, it is finished. But Matthew, the book of Matthew, I'm going to turn there, shows us something really curious I want you to see. I'm going to read Matthew 27, verse 49. But others said, wait, let us see if Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and yielded up his spirit. Verse 51, follow me here. And behold, the curtain, that curtain, the curtain in the temple was torn in two. From top to bottom, the earth shook and the rocks were split. Now, maybe, maybe we'd be struggling to connect the dots here, but think about it. If there was a wedge between humanity and God, if there was a chasm, a separation, the curtain in the temple demonstrated that access to God wasn't possible in the same way that it once was. It was just extremely limited to that one point on the Day of Atonement. So what's going on right here? Because the temple curtain is split in two in the Holy of Holies, and now the Holy of Holies is exposed. What's that mean? Well, I think very simply what's going on, as Hebrews chapter 9 will show us, is that Jesus has laid himself down as the full and final and perfect sacrifice for his people. And now that temple curtain is torn, access is now available. Not just to the high priest for that small moment once a year, not just for the people of Israel, but for anyone. The access is now available. So think about this. When the author of Hebrews says that Jesus is our great high priest, what's he saying? He's saying Jesus has entered into the holy holies, not in like that tent that was made with human hands. And this priest didn't offer an animal for the sacrifice, but this priest laid his own life down so that his people could have their sins atoned for and then have access to God again. That's what he's saying when he says Jesus is our great high priest. But there's more to this great high priest. You ever in a restaurant or you've gone around someone's house to eat and they, they, they cook something absolutely delicious and you think, that, that's great, I love that. And then they come out with dessert and you think, you should have told me. I would have had less the first time around. This is great, I love this. Now, this is a lot like Hebrews. Jesus is the great high priest, but there's so much more to be dug out right here. Look at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest, look at this, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now think about this. He's not just any old priest. Not just, he's not just any old high priest throughout the history of Israel. He's Jesus, the Son of God, our high priest. And then what does verse 15 say about him? He's sinless. He was tempted like we are. And what does he say? He sympathizes with our weaknesses. Now think about this. He's sinless. We've been there. We get that. He didn't sin like we did. 
But interesting, the next thing is he wasn't tempted like us. Do you ever ask the question right there? Hang on a second. How can someone be, be sinless and yet never be tempted like we are? That doesn't seem to match up, does it? Well, think about it. Only the person who has ever fully endured temptation and come out the side can really understand what temptation is. Only the person who's been through it. We give up halfway through. We know what it's like to be tempted and give in in five minutes. We don't fully understand what it's like to go through everything that can be thrown at us in life. Jesus knows. So if there's anybody who fully understands what temptation is like, it's the one who's endured it and come out the other side sinless. Jesus. So he's sinless, tempted as we are, understands. And what does it say right there? He's not unable to sympathize. So he can sympathize with where we are. Counselors today will often talk about the difference between sympathy and empathy. So so they'll say, sympathy is... uh, looking at someone in pain or or hurting or in a tough spot and saying to them, I hope things improve for you at some point. It looks really rubbish for you. I really hope and pray things get better for you. That's sympathy. Empathy, a counselor would say, is very different. Empathy steps into their pain with them. Empathy gets alongside them. Empathy is able to say, I know I'm with you, I'm beside you. So, so counsellors will often use the illustration of a pit. So imagine somebody falls into a pit or somebody's in a really dark place. Sympathy stands on the edge and says, oh, that looks really rubbish down there. I hope you get out at some point. Oh, I'm really sorry for you. I hope it gets better. Empathy gets into the pit and sits alongside them and says, I know what this feels like or I'm with you or let's get out of this together. Let's work on this. I'm right beside you. Now, this word right here, sympathy, that the author of Hebrews uses, is two Greek words. Sim, which usually means alongside or together, and pasco, which can mean to suffer. So so this is a suffering together or a suffering alongside. So actually, the concept seems to be a little bit closer to what counselors today would say is empathy. You see, Jesus is sinless, tempted as we are, but can sympathize with our weaknesses because he has taken on human flesh and walked this hard, messy road. You can look at his life and see that Jesus is able to say, at our pain, in our suffering, in our hardship, I know, I'm with you, I'm beside you, I get this. He's not standing on the edge of the pit saying, well, I hope you can figure this out. I hope it gets better for you. Oh, I'm really sorry. It's, I know. I I see this. I get it. I sympathize. I'm with you. Let's do this. So think about this. Connect the dots. A high priest who is sinless and who sympathizes. So, So what do we do in light of that? What do we do? Verse 16 gives us our answer. Let us then, it's not like a suggestion, it's a you must. Let us then, draw with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So in light of the high priesthood of Jesus, 
in light of the fact that we have a high priest who has laid himself down on our behalf, the temple curtain is torn, access is now made available. In light of that high priest who is sinless and sympathizes with us, what does he say? Draw near with what? With timidity? With trembling? With this fearfulness that makes you want to run away and go the other direction? No. To draw near with what? Confidence. To where? The throne of grace so that we may find what? Mercy, help, and grace in the time of need. Now think about this. What the author is doing is he's grounding our confidence in prayer, our audacity as we pray, in what? In the high priesthood of Jesus. In this sympathetic, in this sinless sacrifice, this final and perfect sacrifice on our behalf. We can pray with confidence because Jesus is our high priest. Now notice what we have in the life of Jesus then. We don't just have the God to human movement. We don't just have the God who puts on human flesh. What we also have in the high priest is the human to God movement. We have someone who stands there on our behalf and pleads our case before the Father. He's interceded for us, and Romans 8 tells us he continues to intercede on our behalf. We have a high priest. So whenever we sit there thinking to ourselves, does God really care? Does God really listen? Can God hear me? Is he interested? Do my prayers go beyond the ceiling? Well, the answer is, if you're in Christ, yes, there's access. So we pray with a confidence. You see what the author of Hebrews is saying right here? If we see the high priesthood of Jesus, if we see this sinless and sympathetic high priest, we can have a confidence. So it means that because Jesus is a high priest, we can draw near with a gutsy kind of prayer. Because of the high priest of Jesus, we can draw near with an unflinching, unshaking kind of prayer. We can have metal as we bow the knee. Because Jesus is a high priest, we can have that bottle, we can have that nerve, we can have that resolute resolve and fearlessness as we pray. Because Jesus is our high priest. Access is now available to us. So I could boil this down in just to a sentence. I think I'd say this, because Jesus is our sinless and sympathetic high priest, we can pray with confidence. I'll say that again, because we boil all of this down. Because Jesus is our sinless and sympathetic high priest, we can draw near with confidence. Let me boil that down just a little bit more. In prayer, pray with confidence. I'll boil it down just a little bit more. In prayer... Stand tall. Shoulders back, chest out, chin up, look up, back straight. Stand tall when you pray. Because Jesus is our high priest. The story is told about a a Presbyterian minister who was teaching some lectures in Southern California. He had some time off while he was living there and doing his lectures. So he said, right, I'm going to go down to the beach to go for a swim. So just as he was getting ready to jump into the water, someone walked past and he greeted them. Say, how are you doing? Good. And they carried on, did their own thing. Now he then comes out of the water after his swim and this guy is then walking back towards him. And they end up having a conversation. 
He ends up introducing himself. He says, I'm a Presbyterian minister. I come from Scotland, but I'm only here for a little while to teach some lectures. And this man says, I'm really glad I bumped into you. Life's been really difficult the last little while. So he then shares his story. And it turns out after 45 years of a very happy marriage that this man's wife is dying of cancer. And he says, I don't really know what to do. So I came out here to pray, but I'm really struggling. I don't know if I'm being heard. I don't know if God really cares. I don't really have the words to say, and I can't quite get this right. He says, I'm really glad I've bumped into you. So the pastor says, look, you've got a great high priest. You've got one who intercedes on your behalf. You've got one in whose righteousness you stand, who has made a sacrifice for your sin. Draw near, there is access. And so all of a sudden, this guy begins to find he has the heart to pray. And he comes back a few days later. The next day he came, the next day he comes back looking for me and said, I've been telling my wife what you told me. Tell me more. The third day he came again, do me a favor. Come and speak to my wife, he says. Well, of course, says the pastor. So he took her to a, he says he took me to her bedside. And there she was, a frail, dying woman. What did I talk to them about? Well, I told them about the Trinity. I didn't use that word, of course. But I spoke to them about a loving God, our Father, who has given us Christ and the Spirit to draw us to him in prayer. And about Jesus Christ who died for us, that we might be forgiven, to receive that sonship and be led by the Spirit into eternal life. I spoke about Christ, our risen great high priest, touched with a feeling for our infirmities, interceding for us, opening our hearts by the Spirit. I prayed with them both. A few weeks later, he wrote to me to tell me his wife had passed on. And he said this, she is safe in the arms of Jesus. So many times in our lives, we find ourselves not knowing what to pray. So many times in our lives, we find ourselves asking the question, does he really hear me? Does he actually care? Do my prayers go beyond the walls of this room? Does he actually care what I have to say? Little insignificant me. Does God hear me? Well, the answer is from Hebrews, we have a great high priest whose name is love, who lives and intercedes for me. If you're in Christ, yes, he hears. So therefore, the call of Hebrews is to draw near, but to draw near with confidence. Because Jesus is our great high priest. In prayer, we can stand tall. Let's pray together and then we get to sing our last song together. Lord, we are grateful for your word, speaks into our lives and transforms us. Lord, we pray that we would grow in our understanding of Jesus being our great high priest. And in that, we would grow in confident, gutsy, audacious kind of praying, knowing that we can draw near. Change our prayer lives. Help us by your spirit to stand tall. And we're praying in Jesus' name. Amen.